before we begin the program, a word from our presenting sponsor, Van Cleef and Arpels. This year, the Maison is working with the American Museum of Natural History in New York to present the exhibition Garden of Green, Exquisite Jewelry by Van Cleef and Arpels, now on view in the museum's Mignone Hall of Gems and Minerals until March 2024. Garden of Green showcases 44 creations from the French High Jewelry House, 32 of which are in view in the United States for the first time. A lush garden of jewelry, this impressive array of precious and ornamental green stones form a dazzling journey that celebrates the beauty of gardens and nature. One area of the exhibition highlights a diversity of green stones. Another concentrates on particular materials, such as jade, chrysoprase, and malachite. And a third displays a selection of majestic creations set with emeralds. For more information, visit amnh.org slash exhibitions. I'm not scared to show anymore something I'm not hiding. What I'm developing more and more and more, it's a little bit the truth. I think that a house has to represent yourself your social class and whatever, because it does at the end of the day. Now, it's, it's, it's an important way of, you know, imagine when you dress up or whatever, you know, it's more freedom. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour to the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. On today's episode, I'm starting with a simple question. Why is Milan so cool? From the food to the interiors to the people, we're always drawn back to what most people would consider Italy's most corporate city, one that most tourists outside of fashion and design typically skip. My guest today epitomizes the style and values that make the city the barometer of chic, Massimiliano Locatelli. Of course, he's not from Milan originally. You know how sensitive Italians can get about such things. But for decades, this architect has been creating spaces that have been widely influential in that particular look. Minimal but not cold. Colorful sometimes, but never garish. Clever, but never gimmicky. Massimiliano first entered by consciousness in 2015 when WSJ Magazine published his office. Boring sounding, I know, but this wasn't just any office. He renovated a deconsecrated church in the city center, placing a multi-level black steel and glass cube in the center. Elaborate paintings and frescoes and Greek columns contrasted with a stark white floor. Later, he convinced our previous guest, Nina Yashar, the owner of the famed design gallery Nilofar, to convert a storage space into a new curatorial destination that would influence the collecting world for years, and still does. More on that later. Locatelli has offices in New York and Milan, and has made a name for himself designing fashion boutiques, starting with Trussardi and then later everyone from Jill Sander and Valentino to Michael Kors. Today, he splits his time between creating these commercial spaces and truly unique homes for private clients. Like so many designers at his level, he produces his own unique furniture for the homes he creates. And today he has his own collection of truly unique pieces called Massimiliano Locatelli Editions. Want to see the designer's pieces with your own eyes? Visit our new website, thegrandtourist.net, for a full transcript, images, and more. So I caught up with Massimiliano from his offices in Milan to talk about the extravagant clients that inspired such inventive pieces in his collection, how he converted a church and former convent into an office, and why Milan remains a uniquely incredible place for everything cool. So, uh, of course... I'm a fan of your work, and I've known your work for a long time, uh, but I, I know almost nothing about your your early life. Um, tell me a little bit about some of your earliest memories, and, and where are you from? Oh, that's interesting. I'm from Bergamo, and Bergamo is a small town, like 40 miles north of, 40 kilometers, actually 30 miles north of Milan, and it's a beautiful town because it's a medieval town. And um, it's divided in two, and in dialect we say Bergamo de Sura, Bergamo de Sota. So it's the upper Bergamo and the lower Bergamo, and the upper Bergamo is a medieval town, as I said, close in a big wall. Mm -hmm. So there is like a stone wall, and the city is protected by the wall inside in this huge wall. I've been, I've been to Bergamo, yeah. No, it's, uh... it's really special, I have to say. It is. It's like two cities, completely different. Yes. And the lower part is, it's, it's more like contemporary. 
and um, it's more beginning of 20th century and and it's all the development part and i was living basically on the street going up to bergamo alta ah. and um and yeah and you know it's it's really a different it's very close to milan but is totally different from milan the dialect first is a dialect which is uh, used a lot in the job sites because oh. a lot of the contractors are from Bergamo. Oh. So as soon as I step in a job site, I said, listen, guys, I understand dialect, so do not talk bad about me <laughs> because I know everything. And it's true. It's like a dialect is like really another language. Wow. It's, it's How is it different? Um, the language, you mean? The dialect. Oh, the dialect is like really like... Um, uh, I have to say it's um, it sounds a little bit German, huh. but it's like very um, Bergamo was under the Venetian influence for a long time, so it's a little bit connected to the Venetian dialect, but it's developing its own way and it's really another language. Oh, okay. So it's very similar to the dialect from Brescia. You know, Italy was not a country was a group of country sure. and it was the unification was at the end of the 19th century. So it's like if we are a lot of country one into the other and everybody has his own food, his own language, his own thing. And it's really interesting because these roots are still are still there. Yeah. And um uh, our food in Bergamo is the polenta, you know, the yellow uh, polenta, oh, the corn, <laughs> the corn flour. Bergamo was in the medieval time a poor city, and and the polenta was the only um, food that the, the people there had. So um, was interesting how polenta and formaggio and cheese, or polenta and uh, and polenta uccelli is the it's birds you know so they were hunting birds and they were little birds on the polenta like now it seems crazy to eat the little birds but it was it was it is what it was and um it's really interesting that bergamo was uh, where i grew up and it's a very small reality and the bergamaschi are very introverts somehow mm. i my father was from piedmont and my mother was from brescia nearby anyway north of italy they met there and uh, but the reality of bergamo it's a very everybody's very proud to be from bergamo they basically oh they we don't give a shit about milano being the big metropolis next to us but it's like we are in the privilege to be in that beautiful medieval city and the city is very intact it's like you go you step inside in the walls and you really step back a thousand years mm -hmm. and you are you as you have seen you know and you are like really in this crystallized medieval city fantastic as i was saying i i was there until my high school and then i moved to milano for um college where I studied at uh, the Politecnico di Milano, and we don't have, you know, interior design, inter like we are, we have Faculty of Architecture, that's it in Italy. So um, you study architecture, and you know, as we say, from the city to the spoon, they teach you everything. It's a five years college where you like a really pump inside um, and I loved it because it's really a, a beautiful, it was and it still is really a beautiful school. But I escaped one year and I was for one year in Dublin. I switched with a program and one year I, I spent the fourth year of the university in Dublin and NCAD, National College of Art and Design. Did you study, does, did you, what was that like for you to go to? That was really fun. Yeah. You know, it was it because in Italy we really had, I mean, colleges are really intense. Mm. So for me, there was a year, a fun year. And when <laughs> I came back, I had to study double because I have to, you know, yeah that I was working a lot there but was really fun and I and Dublin was 1990-1989 so Dublin was still a beautiful city mm. there were you know the horses with the peat around and and for me it was like a, a Bergamo a little version of you know was a small it, it's it's not a big city so was really interesting and then I come back uh, study I finish my college and then, uh, um, yeah, and then I moved to the Big Apple and I, I did um, my PhD in New York, where, you know, of course, was a different scenario and was a big, uh, a big story because I remember I went to the Columbia University. I was there for vacation the summer and I went to the Columbia University and I saw Kenneth Frampton. I was like, what? When we study in, in, in Italy, you know, we called the books with the name of the writer. So we were studying the Frampton 
Il Frampton was the <laughs> history of architecture book, was one of our big book in university. So when I arrived at the Columbia, I said, wow, so there is a Mr. Frampton. Who is? So I went to talk to him and um, I said, I really would like, you know, to see uh, something from your side with your eyes. And he said, okay, come over. We can start in September. And we started and I did my my PhD there for, for three years. And so I became really familiar with the city. And then, so let's say from Bergamo to New York, you know, and uh, it was a big jump. That was a big jump. How long were you in New York for? Uh, from there since ever, like, because then I got a little place and then I kept it and then I got a little bigger one. And then I, you know, I became part of the city and of the scene there. And um, it was really interesting because... Um, at the beginning, I had, you know, Italian friends, as Italian do, and then, you know, you start have friends at school, friends around, and opening up, and and then you become part of, a, of, of the city, and you feel part of the city. And I remember the day when I was, and I was flying a lot back and forward, because after the PhD, we opened the office and everything, and uh, I was flying back and forth, and... Uh, the day that I was flying to New York and I was not feeling enthusiastic or, you know, with a butterfly in the stomach, like, wow, I'm going to New York, which was normal to go to New York. I said, that's really sad because now maybe I can consider myself a little bit a one finger New Yorker, but I don't have the emotion that, oh my God, I'm landing in New York, you know? And that I was really sad. I was really sad. But uh, at that point, I could understand that it was quite normal, unfortunately, to be back and forward. And then that's what I've done since ever now. And uh, after the COVID, I, say, I have to say that I was uh, excited and happy to be back because, you know, we couldn't come for a couple of years to the, to the United States as Europeans. So it was really nice to be back and was full of enthusiasm. But then it's, it's normal. To me, uh, your sense of style and your sense of design is I I immediately connect it with Milan as a city um, and what I think of as Milanese design today, like very contemporary, what defines, you know, that sense of style. And I think a lot of designers in Italy have used your furniture or have used some of the look. Um, but I'm wondering now that you work abroad and you work all over the world and we'll be speaking about some pieces that you've had in Asia and other projects. Um, what do you think you have absorbed in your career that separates you from other Italian designers and your contemporaries that makes you unique? Yeah, that's interesting because I was talking now at lunch with a journalist about a house I've been designing in India. And uh, that was really interesting. And this is really reflecting what you are asking me because... Um, in Milan, we are very, uh, like, low-key, low-profile. You don't have to show at all. If you richer you are, less you show. So quiet, no show-off. That's really in the culture. Now, it's interesting because a lot of foreigners are coming to Milan, especially from London, because there is this flat rate tax. You pay 100000 if you're arriving from outside. And for 10 years, you pay, like, London was doing before, like now this is the moment for it. You know? So a lot of people from England, all the you know bankers are coming to Milan and they want an apartment. And they want like apartments around 8,000, 10,000 square feet. But we don't have them in Milan. <laughs> like a big apartment in Milan is 3,000, 4,000 square feet. It's considered a big family apartment. So they're like, oh my God, I was talking to a broker yesterday. He was like, oh my God, but why you don't have 9,000, 10,000 square feet apartment. It's not, maybe you can buy two, you have to find two on the same floor and combine them, but it's not what we have. It's not in our tradition. Like three, 4,000 is already a big apartment in Milan. And not my family is living 2,000 square feet. And New York has different situations because, you know, there are townhouses. We don't have townhouses. So a townhouse can be a bigger space. Sure. And if you buy the whole townhouse, can be a bigger space. There are apartments on, you know, Park Avenue in that area and Upper East Side where there are really big apartments. But in Milan, we don't. So, and they were asking me, why you don't have big apartments? Because people here don't want to show off too much. Really is what it is. And if you see 
you know, people, especially in winter in Milan, and I don't think it's sad, but it's like the aesthetic here, you know, gray, maybe beautiful fabric, but very simple, very like, think about Prada. Mm. Think about the austerity of Prada, the elegance and the austerity of, of the, the way Mucha Prada thinks the women, no? Like um, a kind of monastic culture and um, really not too much. So the same is into the interiors, the same is into architecture, the same is into that kind of aesthetic. And when I was called a few years ago to design the house of uh, the Ambani family in uh, Mumbai, was really interesting because there are two brothers. One of them, Mukesh, has the $1 billion house, called the $1 billion house. They call the house with the quantity of money has been spent to build the house. Okay. And Mukesh Ambani is the richest guy in India. And, um, and he lives in the $1 billion house. So the wife of the brother, um, Anil Ambani, came to my office. My office at the time was in the church, came to my office. And uh, I didn't know who she was. She arrived. I remember vividly the, the memory of when she stepped in. was a beautiful Indian woman. And uh, she was arriving from a wedding in Venice. So, okay, for me it was Venice, India. Okay, and she arrived with this beautiful necklace with these green crystal big bubbles and a big Buddha in crystal like that. Right, like uh, in uh, on, on I said large. Oh, Buddha <laughs> India like beautiful, no? Yeah. And I said, Wow, I didn't know that in Venice they were, you know, blowing glass uh, with the Buddha shape. That's really interesting. I didn't know that Venice was into Buddha or weird. And she said, Dear, this is an emerald. <laughs> and was big as a statue yeah. and the glass you know it was oh, like wow. so big and it was like okay let's talk <laughs> and and i didn't know who she was no and what was impressive because they are not scared to show you know and then i worked on the project of their house and they were like you know what we are competing with my uh brother-in-law she was saying and and he has the most expensive house in the world so we have to design a house which is better than his house so and, and, you know, I was like, wow, that's for me a big different point of view, you know. And uh, and uh, I remember when I was going to India and we were discussing the project, etc., etc., um, they were giving parties and the, the wife of, of uh, Anil Ambani, this guy was designing the house for, she was an ex-Bollywood actress, so she was inviting all the Bollywood people and everybody was showing huge jewelry huge huge jewelry and uh and i was like this is a way of being which is exactly the opposite of how i grew up no it's like we feel guilty if you have a little bit too much you don't feel right if you are showing what you have and you really think in milan and in italy but in milan especially you don't feel uh in the right place if you are uh in this kind of ostentation you have really to keep it private and if you are to never talk about money if you talk about it you talk like half and half and half of what you have you mm. turn it down yeah india is the opposite they enjoy it they love it and they show it and so that was for me a huge learning process and uh, they were not scared or shamed about their richness everybody knew they were really rich and they wanted to live with it so have you picked up on some of that uh showmanship a little bit you think that over time you've become a little no, bit less so exactly that is the point that now i um look things from a different point of view mm. and uh, of course uh, i'm not used to you know emerald like that and it's not my aim but i'm not scared to show anymore uh something i'm not hiding let's say what i'm developing more and more and more it's a little bit the truth you know so i think that a house has to represent yourself your social class and whatever because it does at the end of the day i'm not scared to represent it or to try to represent it for yourself i'm quite open to um, read your desires and fly with you if you want uh, without cutting out everything and cancelling everything so, and that was very important for me because I was really 
No, 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 we cannot, we cannot. Now, yes. No, it's, it's, it's an important way of, you know, imagine when you dress up or whatever, you know, it's more freedom. And, and before we get to uh, the, the, the products part of, of our conversation, um, the, of course, I, it's hard not to mention uh, Nilofar Depot. Um, you know, probably the first stop on everyone's calendar for the Salon de Mobile. Um, yeah. And uh, Nina has been on the podcast in the past. So how did you meet up with Nina and how did that, uh, the depot happen? Because it's such a... Nina, I know since ever, let's yeah. say. Really, uh, you know, Milan is not a big city and in the design world, we know each other. And uh, she um, has been a friend for a long period. And um, when she bought the depot, was supposed to be uh, a storage place. So, um, but she had and still has a store in Via della Spiga, which is next to Monte Napoleone. You know the fancy clothing fashion street, and she had a gallery there. But it's a small place, of course, compared to the depot, and she loves putting things together, reorganizing spaces. It's her job and, and combining family of, of objects, reading an object in a different way. And that's what she's really good at, I have to say. So when she bought that as a um, storage space, we went out. I remember we were at Nobu in Milan and uh, was her daughter, Nina, and I. And um, she was telling me, and she was talking to a friend of hers a guy who recently unfortunately died and was a an was not an architect was let's say he was a little bit an interior decorator he was an old guy who had a great taste and was helping nina sometimes in in you know developing her space and etc etc so he was trying to organize the 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 space as a storage in the best way and he was saying nina you have a huge storage but let's build a little structure in the middle of this huge storage so you have a room which is a thousand square feet where you can do something nice in the chaos of the storage so they were building this little room this little space in the middle of this big cathedral which was the which is the depot and she was asking me what do you think about this project what do you think and i was like you know it's her friend what can i say it's horrible what's it like it's exactly the opposite what i would think it was like so she made me really drunk that's really nina <laughs> method she made me really drunk with sake and then i was like you know what i would do exactly the opposite i would do you know all the rooms inside and i always was calling nina bambola like doll uh, and I was like, bambola, bambola. So I said, you know, I would do like a dollhouse. You know the dollhouse when you take the facade out and you see all the rooms of, uh, of the dollhouse, the bathroom, the bedroom, the living room, and you see, like, take the facade out of the little building and mm -hmm. you see all the house. So I was like, I would do like a dollhouse or like La Scala Theater where you have all the little palki around the space and a central square empty and I would divide in three floors and I would do this, blah, 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 what the depot is right now. And I would do every room a room. Like you can invite friends to reorganize a room, you can invite people, you can organize all of them, but it's a space where you can, and if it is your real storage, Organize your storage and show your storage to people because the storage for a gallerist is the power of the gallery. So instead of keeping stuff wrapped up, display stuff in all the storage and make like a huge building with your merchandise displayed properly, open on a square. And so she was like, Nina, I have to say, she has a lot of bad things, but a lot of good things. And that was, she's really fast. And she said, you're right, the following morning called, destroyed the little room in the middle of the depot and built that story. And she had a huge fight with her friend, of course, who hated me at that point that I demolished his project, but really I was drunk <laughs> and I didn't want to go there. He was really a nice guy. But, um, and then the depot, I guess, became the space where Nina can really express herself in the best way and uh, she can really you know i guess i was you know what i think that architecture is you don't have to do uh, everything for yourself or, or you know print your name on everything you do you really have to make spaces for the client and uh, understand the needs and make a custom made thing for 
spot the person. And I think that the depot, the depot was the best thing I have done because it was really what Nina needed and was really what uh, could make her, like, she can express herself in the best way, really, and um, she can play and enjoy her, um, her everyday life. Yeah. So I guess that is like, you know, it's very a psychological thing, our job. And, and really, to get in somebody's head and understand what... They, I, I spend a lot of time in talking and in understanding you before working with you. Now, today I got a phone call from a beautiful project, from a big foundation, by the way, in Bergamo. So I'm really happy because it's the first thing I'm going to do in Bergamo. It's yeah. a huge job. It's a huge job. And, uh, and I said, and they said, okay, you can do everything. I said, you know what? calm down not to be arrogant but i said before marrying we have to become boyfriend and girlfriend boyfriend and boyfriend whatever you want but we have to engage a little bit and then maybe we get married so let's start from a small thing and let's see if we like each other but let's try to understand each other and this is what i really like and you really um I, one of my best friend and i was telling you milan it's really a psychologist and i very often talk to her to understand what is the need of another person and what she can read through the words that another person is telling me. I guess that we should be really in touch with the psychologist to understand uh, the person we have in front of us. And you know, speaking of uh, uh, freedom, uh, one of your most popular projects was uh, a conversion of a church in Milan. Uh, are you still there, by the way? This is just no, no, okay, no, 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 no. But tell me, it was tell me, my office, yeah, and tell me a little bit about that story, um, how that started. It started that they came to me, uh, the church people, okay. and they uh, at this big church, which was a very beautiful church because it is a very beautiful church. It's called San Paolo Converso and is a double church because the church was connected to a cloister nun monastery and uh, so the back side of the church was for the cloister nun and the cloister nuns they cannot see anybody for the entire life they are devoted to god and they close themselves into the monastery and they cannot be in touch with anybody from outside the monastery and that's uh, was very important in the 17th century 16 more in the 17th century because if you were from a rich family and you were a girl or there were two ways or you could marry a very rich guy from another family fine so you are going to the other family at the same level from where the family you are coming from or you are going in a convent because usually the guys were the one keeping all the properties and keeping the strength of the family without dividing the money of the family between all the kids. So uh, the girls, they had two possibilities or to find a rich husband or to go in a convent. This girl was in the convent and then her father died. So she inherited all the money that she was supposed to have mm -hmm. because the brother died. And um, so she built a new convent in Milan and was the end of the 16th century, was 1592, something like that. Mm -hmm. She built a huge convent for all the other girls, but she was the boss of the convent and then it's called the badessa the badessa of the convent which is the boss of the convent mm. and the badessa decides everything in the convent so she had the power to decide all the rules of the convent so she decided to keep the convent even if it was supposed to be for cloister nuns closed she decided to keep the convent a little open which was quite normal in that period because the girls were locked in a convent but they wanted to live their own life mm. so there were guys going in and out from the convent and it was somehow formally a cloister nun convent but then you know uh, there were a lot of stories of nuns pregnant in the convent having their own life having you know their own affairs they built this church which was connected to the convent and the church was cut in two so the back part of the church was for the cloister nuns and the wall in the middle was dividing them from the normal people in the front of the church and the priests they were there for the mass um so the church was built for the acoustic and the 
nuns in the back were singing for the whole mass and so the acoustic was the best acoustic running around in the whole church and the voice from you know they were calling in that time the go the voice from god was filling up the whole church and was this magical voice uh, jumping on the dome of the church and filling up the whole space also for the normal people in front um, uh, staying in the front part of the church so they were like really two church with the wall in the middle and the back was for these nuns entering from the back door and the, the other people entering from the front door it was a very special church because of that so um, on top of that she became very rich so they decided to paint the whole church with an important name and um, there were two brothers called Icampi. Icampi means the fields, and the brother Campi were the teacher of Caravaggio. So the story says that Caravaggio was going every other day, stepping by and stepping in the church to look what his teacher was, his teachers were doing and how they were painting the church. It's the only monument, is a national monument, who was entirely frescoed by the Campi brother. So it's really impressive. And um, um, the, the roof is like round as uh, a tunnel, esatto, but it's not, like, it's not like that, but it's like a dome in that way, it's like a tunnel. And the wall that divides the two spaces is ends at the beginning of the tunnel so the semi-arch on top of the wall it's open on the two sides so when they offered me the church i was like i'm not baroque first of all it's the one of the emblematic monument of the baroque i said i'm not baroque and what do i do here i put my little tables with my people and the church <laughs> is 18 meters tall so it's like wow, uh, that's like 30 45 feet yeah like it's huge and I said, what should we do? We stayed down on the floor. So I said, uh, okay, I take the church, I renovate the roof, I do everything I have to do, I renovate the whole space, but I want to build like four floors inside. I was thinking I built in the back four floors and my um, meeting room sticks out and spies on the front part. So I built like sort of a building in the back but there was all the landmark and it was a problem because to build in a 16th century church is really... So the church was pushing the project to happen and at the end of the day we did it. We made four floors. It was like an iron structure, just... Like a floating glass oh, box almost like in the center yes, of the church. Yes, an iron and glass, exactly. And the, the meeting room was overlapping the central wall and so when you were in the meeting room you were spying in the front and the front was uh, became a... Uh, art uh, foundation so it was really interesting and the relationship with the space became really interesting it was really dark though because there was no light in that church so after five years we moved out of the church and we kept it as a as a as an art foundation for a period and it was really interesting but again there i learned again you know living in a baroque structure full of frescoes and all colors and everything was another big input to let's not be shy let's not be really milanese and be really minimal but let's see the world from another point of view and another perspective and and the church like that was deconsecrated because i think someone died there like can you tell no the church was deconsecrated first of all because um napoleone when napoleon when he was trying to um decrease the power of the church especially in Italy, where the power of the church as always and still is very strong. So he wanted to deconsecrate few churches in Italy as much as possible. And he had the right to deconsecrate that church because was on the same square with another church. In the same square, there were two churches. And then on top, there was murder person in the church so they use the murder as an excuse but mm. the real fact is that on the square there were two churches and they had to give to napoleone at the time at the strong power and they had to give the possibility to close some of them so especially that square who had two churches they decided not to lose any power in the territory to give one of that churches uh, as a place deconsecrated and then it became you know um a place uh, 
for classical music becomes uh, became a um, uh, record place where Mina, you know, our singer Mina, mm -hmm. she's really a fantastic Italian singer, the best voice, especially in the 60s and the 70s, and she was recording all her songs there. Oh, wow. And then when we open our studio, we... At, uh, we were really lucky because we opened up with a concert and um, Liki Lee, this friend of mine, she came from LA and she gave a concert in the church mm -hmm. in the honor of Mina and singing and again filling up the space with her voice. And, you know, she's a tiny little girl and the voice in the church was like becoming huge and was, was, really, was really beautiful, I have to say. Before we return to Massimiliano Locatelli, a word from our presenting sponsor. Van Cleef and Arpels. This year, the Maison is working with the American Museum of Natural History in New York to present the exhibition Garden of Green, Exquisite Jewelry by Van Cleef and Arpels, now on view in the museum's Mignone Hall of Gems and Minerals until March 2024. Garden of Green showcases 44 creations from the French High Jewelry House, 32 of which are on view in the United States for the first time. A lush garden of jewelry, this impressive array of precious and ornamental green stones form a dazzling journey that celebrates the beauty of gardens and nature. One area of the exhibition space highlights a diversity of green stones. Another concentrates on particular materials, such as jade, chrysoprase, and malachite. And a third displays a selection of majestic creations set with emeralds. For more information, visit amnh.org exhibitions. And, you know, sp speaking about your career and, and this sort of relationship you have with your client, I'd love to talk about uh, four, four or five uh, specific pieces in your career, because now you've been showing with uh, New Lafar Gallery for 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 a while, and now you're striking out with your own collection. Um, and the, the first one I wanted to bring up um, are these sort of Kaiban uh stools and tables which you know if i were to explain them to to a listener they look like uh they're made completely out of marble but they look like a kind of monoblock uh shape of something you might see in asia as like a uh, a kind of um monoblock plastic piece but it's of course made completely yeah, out of molded, marble yeah and tell me yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah. this these pieces and how they how they came to be yeah they are like they are one of my favorite things, and I I haven't done anything on them, but I've done everything with them. So it's like a really thin line. It's a, you know if you go to Asia and if you go especially in Vietnam, but in all Asia, but still here also here a little bit. There are these bars like this. Life in the streets is very important, and life in um, um, like a little bit in the south of Italy. In the south of Italy, we are not so aggressive, but we have a chair outside the house. And the lady, they stay on the chair and they chat with the other lady. So the the street become a little bit your living room, the extension of the living room. But it's more a lady outside every house chatting with the lady in front of the street and, you know, a small community. In Asia, the street is really the community. It's really the living room and the house of everybody. And then they go in the house sleeping. You see that in China, in Vietnam, everywhere. But in Vietnam, they organize the sidewalk with these little plastic table and these tiny plastic stools, colorful, beautiful, where they sit on and then they can, you know, overlap them, close them, put one on top of the other and they disappear at night. So bars, uh, place where you go gambling, you go playing cards, you go, you stay chatting, you eat, you drink a tea. They're organized during the day in the streets on the on the sidewalk, and they're really beautiful. They're really full of life, and they are the expression of. But they are all the same with all the colors. So um, I, in my, I had a big research in Vietnam. I have. Uh, designed the house of the one I call the princess of Vietnam, who is uh, the daughter of the prime minister of Vietnam. And I wanted to represent the beauty of Vietnam and the strength of Vietnam. They have really crazy, beautiful hands. They can do the best of the best. Really, it's a country where they are amazing in manufacturing things. So um, I wanted to use the marble in a proper way. And I discovered a guy who 
is really a special guy sort of a local Michelangelo uh, nowadays. He uh, designs, he makes uh, huge Buddha for the temples and he makes, uh, all his assistants make the huge statue like 10, 15, 20 feet tall and then he finishes the face and the hands because he's the guy who gives the life to the statues. So he really is, he's a very modest guy, super sweet. Um, no age always with this face that can be 12 or 89 and is like always the same super really deep guy deep 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 soul and uh, this guy i met him so i uh, started working with him and um, when i was seeing constantly these objects in the street and i was like not to be you know anti-plastic i was like all these plastic they're so beautiful how we can make them really special and really beautiful and really vietnamese so I was, let's try to make them in marble. So I bought two of them, a table and a stool, and I went to his space and I asked him if he could make one in a solid piece of marble, like carving it. So we studied the way how to, like, because, you know, a table with four legs, you throw away a lot of marble. So the guy is very careful and he loves marble. So there is a mountain in the middle of Vietnam called the White Marble Mountain. In Da Nang, in the center of Vietnam, Vietnam is quite flat. There is this bubble. It's a mountain called the White Marble, White Marble Mountain. And there is this Assoluto White Marble, like the one that Michelangelo was using in Carrara, from Carrara. But now the Carrara Marble has these gray veins and the Absolute White, it's almost finished. It's impossible to find. So we say that Michelangelo was going personally to Carrara, picking up the whitest spot of the marble to make his own statue. And in Vietnam, they still have this beautiful mountain, but the mountain is really disappearing. So they're very careful and they really love the white marble. And um, so with him, we found a way not to throw away too much marble and we decided to organize the table in one piece and the stool is stays two stools stay inside the table so we take out the central part and then he takes out again the central part of the stools and makes a table and the stools from one block but tables and stool are made in one solid piece all and carved and when you look at it you know it's perfect white you look at it now i'm looking at them in my office terrace they really look like white plastic but then you know the eyes sees that they are like solid and then when you go close to it it's not flat the surface because it's end carved it's a little bit soft the surface of the table and if you pass your hand is like a, a soap you know when you when you wash your hand with the soap after a bit becomes smooth but a little bumpy bubbles and yeah, exactly it's really it's really and, and you when you start touching it, you want to touch and touch and touch and touch it again. Become You become addicted to that object. And it's really full of light, energy and beauty. And uh, uh, so we made them. And in Vietnam, they were in his uh, um, factory, let's say. And uh, everybody who was stepping it was getting crazy because, you know, was their own sign, was something from their own culture, but upgraded so much. And so the language was their language, but was a beautiful object. So everybody wanted them. And, um, and it's, it's interesting how, you know, when you touch the cultural elements, but they understood that I liked this um, life on the street and I loved the way uh, life goes by in Vietnam. And they understood the way could be even more beautiful than what already is. And one of one of your your very um, popular and, and probably my favorite pieces the the Westlake table, um, which is incredibly thin with um, very sort of naturalistic looking legs that are quite minimal and they almost look like stalactites coming from a from a from a cave. Um, and they can kind of be arranged in different shapes and very curvy and you can make a table that looks like the letter S. Um, tell me how the Westlake um, how that came to be because that's something that seems very, very particular um, for a project that now has become such a such a signature move and I've seen it in so many projects. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. That table, it's interesting too because I, I, first of all, I never design a table like to design a table. Like, can you imagine? Can you please design a table? <clears throat> what is four legs? A top, like, how, how can you imagine to design a table? All the things that I've designed until now, they came out from a need or from a project, from a special thing that should is not on the market and we should make something and to to fix the problem. So this again was made uh, for the, the same house of the, the princess of Vietnam and uh, and she wanted the dining room and the living room in the same space. And I was like, no, we're like, you are the princess of Vietnam. You cannot eat and have the living room in the same space, you know, no. And she was like, no, no. I, and so we say, okay, you know what? And I was thinking, I take a table and I cut the table in pieces and I distribute the table around. So when she has a dinner, she can put it together. But every day she has little table that becomes next to the couches, become a table for two, become something else and not a huge table in the middle of the living room with the living room around. It's what we don't do, you know, in our culture. So, and she was insisting. So the idea to cut the table and assembling the table according, if you have a dinner for two, you have a small piece. And then the second person, if the dinner is for four, another piece of table, if the dinner is for six, and then you can make a big table, but you don't have constantly a big table. So, I thought that that was um, a way to avoid a huge constant table in the middle of the living room that, and I know her and probably big dinner are twice a year. So the majority of the time she could enjoy the living room in a normal and different way. And so I had to give a shape to this idea and this house is floating on top is the last, I like the three last three floors of a, of a skyscraper uh, in on facing on the West Lake in Hanoi. So I look at it at the West Lake and said, wow, that's really a beautiful shape and we are flying on top of the lake. So let's use this lake as a shape and let's cut the lake in pieces. And so it's very organic. The lake was very organic and the pieces, all of them are very organic themselves too. So when they are around, they're soft and they really can work with the space. And so I was using again the material and I was thought bronze is a material that in Vietnam they use a lot for the bells of the temples. And it's very special material. It's, it's more than bronze, it's tin, which is a bronze with a bit of silver because the sound of the bells is better. So I tried to make that table in Vietnam, but I have to say that that was really a difficult piece to be uh, create the mold, etc., etc. So at the end we made the table in Italy, the material and the inspiration of the material comes from the Vietnam and the, the and, her, and her house. And then I have to say that became really a popular table because there was nothing on the market like that. And I have the same table in my New York apartment, for instance, and it's divided in pieces. One is like a little table where I write my letters. One is another table in another room and blah, blah, blah. But when you have Thanksgiving dinner, you put all the pieces together and you have a huge table for 30 people in the middle of the house. No? So that's really a way to um, use the space in a different way and to solve the problem of sitting down a lot of people, not every day, but whenever you want. So it's, it's, and then the problem, the second problem was how do we sit people? Or you have 30 chairs around in the house or how can I accommodate people when I put all the pieces of the table together. So I designed a chair that opens up and becomes a bench and can sit two people. So it's a chair for one person every day, but you open it up and becomes a little bench and you can sit two people on the bench. And so if you have 12 chairs, you can sit 24 people with a small gesture, opening it up and transforming the chair in a bench, you know. And so the whole problem is solved. But really it, come, it came out from uh, uh, trial to, like, to try to uh, give an answer to a, a, a need that uh, uh, basically everybody has. And then I worked with different materials and I developed it in marble and I developed it in, in, in glass with the company Glass Italia. I developed it in, in enamel, using the enamel from uh, the jewelry company. So uh, making it really precious sometimes or making it really basic in, in iron and linoleum. So it, it's interesting that also the table can be um, made for your own space, but also for your own taste or 
you know, according also on how much you want to spend and different levels and different beauties and um, and different birds. And uh, that's also related to uh, a chair that you've you've made, the ML, I think it's 1.2, right? Which also is similar with the legs and in different materials and, and colors. Was that sort of for the same project or did this come after? Yeah, yeah, because the idea of the table, the chair was the bench, you know, was transformed into a... But then um, uh, the bench... The chair slash bench is a little bit, uh, let's say, heavy or uh, strong. Mm. And um, different client asked me uh, to try to make a chair that could really go with the table. So the legs were really special. The legs of the table are like a little trumpet. You know, they're made from big to small. They're very um, feminine, if you want. It's like a big heel of a of a high and you know, a high heel of a shoe, and it's very looks very fragile. So when we make it in marble, it's very complicated because it's so fragile, being so thin, that be, you start from a big block of marble, you drill it, you put a titanium uh, like small cylinder inside, and then you carve the whole marble out and you make it very thin. So it's 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 quite complicated somehow, but um, so I thought to start from the beauty of the leg and uh, and make a chair around the foreleg, starting from the forelegs. But I thought again the table can become a lot. So I we need a small chair because we can put one after the other after the other and, and, and have a lot of people around the table. And I didn't want to have a big chair. So I worked really on the minimal surfaces of of uh, the human body and and trying to sit a human body and in in a, in a in a small way and then having this chair and I wanted to have one block, so I tried to make it in brass but was really heavy. It was like sixty pounds. Wow. Okay, <laughs> not movable. So um, we understood the aluminum could have been the best way, and. Um, the best aluminum people are in India, in Muradabad. And um, so I went there for a week and we made one. I went with my brass one, very heavy, and I said, I want to make it in aluminum, in one piece, and have a mold. So we made a quick mold and a temporary mold, and we made the first one and was really beautiful. But when the aluminum, when you open up the mold, the aluminum uh, has uh, some dirty things on top. So it's like... You know the land when it's very hot and cracks. Uh, you know, in like in Africa, if you have imagine a field with all the crack lands, like the earth cracks because it's too dry. Uh, so the surface of the aluminum is very regular in a beautiful way, like a burri painting. Or so I was like, wow, it's really beautiful. So we worked on the imperfection, making it not uh, scratching, not um, too, uh, not dangerous, but uh, just beautiful. And, and probably one of my favorite, personal favorite pieces is uh, the Converso lamp, which uh, is a stand. Which is here. Which is out <laughs> here in me. your studio, um, is a, a sort of tall table lamp um, of sort of, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of like a tripod with connected uh, LED uh, you know, LED, uh, long LED bulbs. Um, but there's a crossbar that kind of makes it look like a giant crucifix. So t tell me about how this, um, probably the most radical and, uh, um, piece uh, came to be. Yeah, it's true. That piece it's, it's again, um, the project started from the bulb because I've been called by Osram, you know, the, the bulb company to design a bulb, which looks like, a um, neon, but is an LED. Mm. So um, we worked a lot around this bulb, and now it's still quite expensive because of the technology. Because I, the neon has a glass with a kind of a white powder, which is like a talc, mm -hmm. right? Do you understand yes. talc? Yeah, yeah, a talc that goes gets sprayed around the glass and makes the glass kind of frosted, but it's not frosted, it's not sanded. It's a white, thin powder attached to the glass, very delicate, mm. because when then, then the bulb is closed, you know, the neo-normal bulb. So it's like 
diffuses the light in a beautiful way and when it gets attached to the glass stays attached to the glass but it's very delicate if you touch with the finger you can remove the powder from the glass of course nobody opens the bulbs and touch the inside sure. with the finger so then i was thinking how to um, make a nicer support than just two screws and so i was in a job site in poland a very nice job site in poland this guy who was uh, was funny because this job site uh, was based the whole design of the house was based on two cheetahs that he wanted to buy like and cheetahs to have. like 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 tigers like like animals. yes two yeah. real ones alive real, real, real cheetahs. cheetahs okay he wanted to have two cheetahs he was quite eccentric and he wanted to have two cheetahs and his wife was pregnant at the time it was really funny because i was thinking about the baby the cheetahs i don't know <laughs> fine <laughs> and so everything should be cheetah strong for cheetah cheetah proof and you know sure so it was quite complex the project and i went it was a big house and i went uh, to poland warsaw outside warsaw one day snow everywhere and the house we were building the house the interiors the materials it's difficult to think you know anything cheetah proof <laughs> but in this beautiful garden there was a cat and i really adore cats and for me, it was like, oh, my God, there is a little cheetah here. Like, you know, the normal European, like a cheetah, normal cat. And um, uh, no special cats. Like, it was really a normal cat. Quite wild because living in the in the garden like around cat, the house. Yeah. But I am quite good. I grew up with cats. So I was like, oh, Michino. And the cat came and jumped on me. And I was going around in the job site with the cat on my arm and petting the cat. The owner came and was like, what? Are you doing with that cat? I said, I don't know. It was, you know, jump, jump on me on the other. It was like, I've been trying to touch the cat since t- seven years. He's so wild. He doesn't want to be touched by anybody. Is This cat is a problem. He's so aggressive that how can you touch it? And they, he tried to pet the cat on me, and the cat was like, <laughs> and, uh, and nobody could touch it. So I discovered in that time that nobody could touch the cat. We had a connection, you know weird but it was really fun so every time i was going to the job site i had this cat jumping on me every time and the owner was like and now we finished the project he called me back after five years the reason he was like you know your cat is still here i cannot touch the cat you have to come back the cat is still with all this problem you are the only one connected to the cat but to make a long short a long story short i uh, was in the job site with my cat and I turned myself and there was, you know, in the job site, to give light to the job site, the constructor guys, they build beautiful objects. And with pieces of wood, they hammered five or six different pieces of wood and they hang on them these two or three neon plastic lamps. And I look at that and I was like, wow, that's exactly what I need to support my neon lamp. So I took the picture and I said, I have to make something very similar, but like very basic elements in metal and hang my lamps as if it was a job site and every, every bulb can have its own cord going down. And so we they made, of course, different tries, but the idea came out from the, you know, spontaneous guy in the job site and uh, my beautiful cat. So that's the the real story of that lamp. What happened to the cat? Uh, as, as I said, he called me back recently saying the cat is still here. I cannot touch the cat, but he's waiting for you. Come back. Okay, so you haven't gone back yet. No, I haven't gone back yet, <laughs> but I will. I will. I guess after the summer, I will. Okay. We have to start a new project, so I will. Um, but it's nice to know that, no? That the cat is still there. Yeah, absolutely. It was really fun. Now I'm working, I'm trying to work... Um, more with glass and i'm designing a beautiful um a beautiful and intense wall sconces with venini and it's really a for a, a special project and that's really important and then i'm working on a let's say let's use the word collection of rugs and um, that's why i will be in india in august in nepal where there are looming them and um, I um, think rugs are very 
difficult like you know the traditional persian rugs they're beautiful but they're so full of things that you know sometimes it's difficult for the eyes to they fill up the space a lot the super minimal rugs are sometimes very nothing so i'm trying to give my a point of view and and i'm developing a project an hotel where we need rugs so i am starting from that as a real need and uh, i'm designing now we have designed 28 of them different and uh, they are starting making them so uh, in uh, august i will see the first couple of them and i'm really into the rugs now so we'll see thank you once again to our episode's presenting sponsor van cleef and arpels the jewelry of this legendary maison is characterized by a distinctive blend of poetry and refinement. With its iconic jewelry collections, it is an invitation to a timeless universe of beauty and harmony. You can discover more at vancleefarpels.com. That's V-A-N-C-L-E-E-F-A-R-P-E-L-S.com. And a special thanks to our guest, Massimiliano Locatelli. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, don't forget to visit our new website and sign up for our newsletter, The Grand Tourist Curator, at thegrandtourist.net. And follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen, and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time, 